Despite a, a lifetime immersing myself uh, in what I consider the provoking, beguiling, bewitching and often befuddling joy of technological development. I am no computer scientist, no coder, uh, no programmer. Many of you, um, most of you, if not all of you, who have been kind enough to come along today will know much more about um, the technicalities of the subject I'm going to discourse upon. Um, take this, if you take it at all, as the offering of a curious mind. Uh, curious in both senses of the word, avid for information and just plain odd. There's a good chance you recognize that voice and the man to whom it belongs. Maybe you've seen him in such films as Wild, for which he was nominated for a Golden Globe, V for Vendetta, or the Hobbit series. Or perhaps in TV shows like Black Adder or Bones. Or maybe you're one of his 13 million Twitter followers. It's no stretch to say that at the age of 60, Stephen Fry, an infinite hyphenate, actor, screenwriter, author, playwright, presenter, radio host, has left no small mark on contemporary culture. He's referred to himself, tongue-in-cheek, as a, quote, all-round national treasure. And he truly is, both in his native UK and his recently adopted home in the US. Survivor of a troubled childhood, which included school expulsions and a three-month stint in prison for credit card fraud, Fry's richly lived life has been fueled by relentless honesty and boundless curiosity. Witness, for instance, his first ever documentary, the 2006 Emmy Award-winning Stephen Fry, The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive. This fearless self-exploration is matched only by his lifelong fascination with literature, history, philosophy, and the evolution of technology. And so it is we find ourselves here with him, winding down after his epic Shannon Luminary Lecture at Bell Labs in New Jersey. And the teaching continues. Oh, bless you. I've got a glass of wine being oh, handed to me. Ellen. Now, in the hierarchy of needs, <laughs> the hierarchy, you, you know the Mazra's hierarchy of needs? Oh, quite, quite high up would be something like wine. Yes, even a proffered glass of wine can trigger his musings. And yet, of course, if you're a human, it, it's the, the things that are high up that, that aren't as necessary which actually are the most necessary. Most necessary. And, and that's the paradox of love as opposed to sex. You know, sex is necessary. We don't need to love to have sex. Great culinary art and wine are more necessary to our happiness, if okay. not our existence. And our existence, we seem to have solved the problem of not dying unless particular accidents and train wrecks and, you know, unfortunate you know, congenital conditions and diseases strike us. But we do have a, a problem of being happy. And it's not a trivial quest. And scientists in the old days didn't look at nonlinear equations and they didn't look at things like happiness. And what's exciting about science now is it's not afraid to turn towards things that before it regarded as not its domain. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. This time around, we're following Stephen Fry down an exquisite rabbit hole to uncover his hopes and fears about our technological future and how to equip ourselves accordingly. This is Episode 7, Stephen Fry's Curious Mind. Despite his protestations that he's not a man of science, it's hard to imagine a more fitting speaker for Bell Labs' Shannon Luminary series. His ever-expanding resume is matched with an unquenchable thirst for all things technological, and he's an inveterate early adopter. By the time the World Wide Web arrived, I was anxious for my friends to get themselves websites and email addresses. After all, it was 
fairly pointless being the only person I knew with an email account. I'd, I'd been through this before as an early adopter, as a matter of fact, when for three years I was the only person I knew with a fax machine. Yeah. It was like being the only person alive with a tennis racket. Pretty useless. Blending portent and humor, Fry frames his Shannon speech in stark terms. Plenty of concerns make the headlines today, trolling, post-truth, fake news, the rise of big data and its ownership of citizenry's every move, preference, spending pattern and propensity. The slavery of the gig economy, the echo chamber and filter bubble that tribalizes and ghettoizes us further and further. The threat of hacking, identity theft, extortion and cyber terrorism, the grooming and recruitment of the young for nefarious ends bullying, body shaming, and so on, and on, and on, and on. But such challenges are as nothing when set beside what's coming down the pike, in a very short while indeed. He conjures up two stories from the past to guide the talk. The story of Pandora's box, using the correct translation, Pandora's jar, and the advent of the game of chess. You see, he once considered the internet to be a new Pandora. I believed, I really believed, that humankind might well be saved, enhanced, perfected by this all-gifted creation. It would spread art, literature, music, culture, philosophy, enlightenment, and knowledge. In its train would come new freedoms, a new understanding between the peoples of the world, a new contract. This was to be our millennium's Pandora, an all-gifted organism that would spread learning, understanding, amity, comity, and peace. The new Pandora's suite of accomplishments and capabilities would bring about a paradise on earth, utopia made real. What could possibly go wrong? Switching gears, he dives deep into an origin story of the game of chess, complete with the untimely end of the brilliant man who first introduced the game to his king. In Fry's telling, Mastery of chess meant a complete intelligence, a mathematical intelligence, a strategic intelligence, a tactical intelligence, a visual intelligence, an artistic intelligence. Chess, therefore, became, from the very beginning, the holy grail as far as the creation of an artificial intelligence was concerned. Indeed, a candidate for the world's very first robot was the Mechanical Turk, an 18th century chess-playing automaton that turned out to be a Wizard of Oz fake, a very small person tucked in a cabinet operating levers. <laughs> it is only in recent times, in 1997, that an actual robot, IBM's Deep Blue, was able to best a human world champion in the game. But was this really a triumph of AI? Larry Tesla of Xerox, Xerox Park, had a rueful but insightful rule named after him. The moment a machine can do it, it's no longer artificial intelligence. The moment Deep Blue defeated Kasparov, chess stopped being a realm for AI. As Noam Chomsky remarked, a computer winning chess is no more surprising than a forklift truck winning a weightlifting competition. Fry's larger point is about the power and promise of exponential growth, as well as its limits. Computational brawn only takes us so far. More notable was IBM Watson's 2011 victory on the game show Jeopardy, when the machine beat out two grandmasters of the game. The biggest winners of all time were left licking their wounds. Let's go to legal ease for 1,200. Watson. What is executor? Right. Same category, 1,600. Answer, very double. 
That was the moment when I knew it's over. The category is 19th century novelists. What Watson wants to do then is preserve the lead, not take a big risk, especially with Final Jeopardy, because just like for humans, Final Jeopardy is hard for Watson. Now we come to Watson, who is Bram Stoker and the wager. Hello, 17,973, and a two-day total of 77,147. I would have thought that technology like this was years away, but it's here now. I have the bruised ego to prove it. My past Jeopardy experiences have been great, but they weren't really weighty with this kind of technological, philosophical importance. I think we saw something important today. This coup demonstrated not only a computer's expected ability to access, analyze, and reproduce facts at lightning speed, but also a commendable grasp of Jeopardy's perverse and idiosyncratic inverted question and answer format, not to mention the tortuous puns, homophones, rhymes, and other forms of high-level wordplay necessary to understand a question in the first place. Watson, who is a bundle of AIs, of course, not one master brain, was offline when playing the game, but had all of Wikipedia baked in, naturally, plus more than 200 million other pages of information. So put together brute force, deep machine learning, reinforcement learning, language recognition, universal data mining, and perhaps we can acknowledge that we are starting to get closer to something remarkable. Remarkable indeed. Harkening back to the discussion of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Fry paints two paths for our future. The first, heralded by utopian denizens of Silicon Valley, sees us outsourcing all the computational grunt work to robots. Optimists and I think I count myself as one, assert that repeated mechanical labor, precision calculation, and backbreaking repetitive toil are but recent temporary elements of our primitive phases in agriculture and industry. They're no more natural and inevitable a part of human life than pulling oars on slave ships, or picking potatoes for a feudal lord, or sending children up chimneys. They say we concede such work gratefully to the machines and take comfort in Moravec's paradox, which states that high-level reasoning, precision repetition and calculation so difficult for us is easy for machines, while simple motor skills that a five-year-old human can do without thinking, such as tying up shoelaces, skipping, dancing or catching a ball, are astoundingly difficult for machines, enough to be considered impossible for quite long into the future. So we can dance, play cricket, or baseball if you must, um, and skip into a bright tomorrow without tripping over our laces while the machines stay in school and do all our work for us. As he tells Bell Labs president Marcus Weldon in the Q&A after the speech, And if you actually make a list of all the things we hate doing, then give that to the machines. And that's what we've done over, over history, you know, vacuuming and, uh, and washing up and uh, so watching television so we can have a recorder to watch television for us and we don't have to do it. <laughs> so Douglas Adams' observation. <laughs> that's very good. <laughs> but um, generally speaking, machines do the stuff we don't want to do and that there is nothing natural and inevitable about work. <laughs> it's just nonsense to think that it is. Obviously, there are, we like to, to mine the riches of the earth or, uh, on the surface of the earth to harvest the bounty of nature and to feed ourselves. We 
do sort of now on a massive scale. An excessive so scale. That, yeah, yeah, that takes work, but a lot of that work we don't need to do. It will demand that we embrace a new sort of freedom. If you're an, a poet, you know that it's much easier to write a sonnet uh, than it is to write a piece of, of, of free verse. It's counterintuitive, but you've got the framework. You fill it in. It's rather exciting. It's I'm like, good at limericks. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, you know how it's going to be, and you can fill it in. But if you're just told, no, um, the, not just the day is yours, the year is yours, your lifetime is yours. It's not going to belong to the company. It's not going to belong to anybody else. It's yours. You're free. You can travel. You can do what you like. You've got this money. But people freak out. Yes. Yeah, I mean, what we're going to have to rediscover is how people can find... The balance. Yes. Oscar Wilde called it the dynamic life. He said, if you want to be a judge or a grocer or a general or a politician, you will become it. That is your punishment. But if every day you wake up and have no idea what you want to do or be, then you will never know, and that is your reward. You will constantly search. And, of course, there's the flip side. The pessimists point to bad actors, hackers, extortionists, terrorists, perverts and thieves who will inevitably come close to holding the planet hostage by absorbing, hijacking, corrupting and weaponizing AI systems. I saw this headline in the New York Post just three days ago. Hackers could program sex robots to kill. <laughs> you can expect much more of this kind of clickbait hysteria. If we thought the Pandora's jar that ruined the utopian dream of the internet contained nasty creatures, just wait till AI has been overrun by the malicious, the greedy, the stupid, and the megalomaniacal. Fry's solution demands a radical, communal effort. If I were the principal or chancellor of a big university now, I would instantly commission urgent reports from the head of every single department on the coming impact of AI on their discipline and the likely effect on their graduates leaving for the world of work. I would insist too on everyone reading everyone else's report because you know we're living in a floodplain and a great storm is coming. Perhaps the most urgent need might seem counterintuitive. While the specialist bodies and institutions I've mentioned are necessary, we need surely to redouble our efforts to understand who we humans are before we can begin to grapple with the nature of what machines may or may not be. So the arts and humanities strike me as more important than ever. We need to understand our soul, spirit, sense of beauty, sense of humour, empathy, love, jealousy, rage, hate, boredom, surprise, enmity, faith, loyalty, art, dance, inspiration, intellect and excitement. Because the more machines rise, the more time we will have to be human and fulfil and develop to their uttermost, our true natures. In our conversation after the speech, over that long-awaited glass of wine, Fry laid out his prescription. When you were speaking about the pessimistic view of how AI may end up, yeah. how do we avoid that? How do we not make that our future? The best we can do is make a noise because obviously we do seem to be at a time when the leaders are least forward planning. I mean, the politics has always been a short-term game, obviously. We have the advantage that whatever we may think of the uh, the titans of Silicon Valley and the social media and the, you know, the Jeff Bezos and the Peter Thiel's and the Elon you know, Musk's and all, the, all these people, whatever we may think of them, no one can call them stupid, <laughs> and they are now beginning to realize that the vast sums of money and power that they have accreted have to go somewhere, 
and no one wants to feel that they die like Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, hated and despised and spat upon for being mean and useless. Most people like the idea there's going to be a university named after them, a, a, a transport system. Elon Musk can get a meeting with any head of state in the world. So can Bill Gates. So can, and Bill Gates has used it, of course, magnificently in the work he does with the foundation of his wife, Melinda. And so Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook and, um, you know, all these people can get meetings. Protocols have got to be agreed. It's, right. it's insanity not to. What is the role of machines in AI going forward? Maybe for a large section of the population, mm. there's, there's, there's time to discover your vocation, yeah. and, and perhaps machines play a role there. I think they do, and I think education is, you know, with university and postgrad and all those sort of things, is the, how they prepare their students, and they prepare society, and they really make, make, make a noise about this. The Latin for draw out is educare, so educate <laughs> means to draw out, and wow. that's, that's the point. It's again, it's always from inside the person. You're not pushing anything in, you're not filling them up. You're finding out what's in them, and you're kindling, you're, you're lighting a fire there, I can picture some sort of AI entity with which a child could engage and which pulled so many connections that, and if a child wasn't interested in that particular connection, so for, you and they know, would self-discover, well, yeah, which so is what your mind seems to do all the time. So what we've created, I think, yeah. is a tool that we were, we're going to rename Virtual Stephen. <laughs> it'll allow us to jump between ideas because I do agree. That's it. My German teacher at school wrote a report which amused my parents enormously, in which he described me. He said. Mm. Fry continues to, to, to behave like an intellectual grasshopper. I don't mean that as a compliment. <laughs> Leaping from blade of grass to blade, blade of grass. Of grass yeah. And all the data that, and all the connections that, that AI can make will enable curiosity both to be more satisfied but also provoked. For more information about the topics discussed today, please check our show notes. To hear Fry's lecture in its entirety, Complete with Q&A? Check out episode 8 in your feed now. If you like this episode of Future Human, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at iTunes. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smallins, for Audiation.fm. It was recorded and mixed at The Loft in Bronxville, New York, with Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Thank you.